We lost a great race car driver on January 30th, 2020, a beloved fundraiser for Riley's Children's Hospital and fierce advocate for colon cancer screening. John Andretti's accomplishments behind the steering wheel were only exceeded by his humanitarian efforts. With an unparalleled life and career to celebrate, I've assembled a podcast feature that makes 16 stops along the way, all told by those who knew him and loved him. His legendary uncle, Mario Andretti, said it best. Try to, to put together how many drivers have driven midgets on dirt, asphalt, sprint cars on dirt, asphalt, sports prototypes, indie cars, stock cars, and top fuel. You tell me who has done all that. No one. No one that I could ever remember. I mean, that I could ever put together. I mean, there's no way there's another one that has done all that. He's alone. He's alone there. In the third installment of Remembering John Andretti, we have Eric Wensberg, who gave John his big professional racing break in 1986, selecting him to be part of the BMW Factory IMSA GTP program. All brought to you in the Marshall Pruitt Podcast by the Justice Brothers, Cooper Tires, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets, USA. Eric Winsberg, really fascinated to learn about John Andretti's introduction into your world as the former program manager of BMW's motorsports activities here in the United States. Mid-1980s, there's this glorious decision to say, you know, we need to take a March GTP chassis, wedge the 1,000-horsepower Formula One four-cylinder <laughs> nuclear explosion into the back of it and go IMSA racing. And in that decision, you have some amazing drivers, right? John Watson, Formula One hero and winner and whatnot. Davy Jones, young American right. star on the rise. And John Andretti the least known Andretti family member who's been going around in circles on dirt in the Midwest and on the East coast. And even in California, uh, not to intentionally ask this in a comical way. Can you help me brother to understand how John Andretti goes from USAC midget <laughs> sprint car racing to getting the call up to the factory BMW IMSA GTP team it seems like one of the all-time great leaps. Well, it, and it probably was. I came into BMW in the spring of 85 as a consultant um, because um, their longtime motorsport manager, um, a guy named Jim Patterson, a terrific guy, was dying of cancer. And he was a longtime SCCA official and had been around American road racing for uh, decades and here, here comes the program of his dreams. Um, and he was really too ill to be able to do much of anything uh, for it uh, uh. Or, or with it. So they brought me in and, and we quickly decided that I would work as a consultant with him um, to get this thing back on track. It was woefully behind schedule by the time I got there. And we had you know 80 or 100 people in Livonia, Michigan at McLaren engines, uh, working on this thing. And we had some test chassis from March that were, uh, 84 or 85 spec. And we were making quite a bit uh, of changes to them. 
We had the Formula One engine was 1.5 liters. We took it to 2.1. We stroked it um, to get um, the right rev range and the right power band and a little more uh, torque out of it. And um, there were many unforeseen um, uh, unforeseen um, developments uh, over the course of that year. But as I recall, we wanted, we all agreed pretty quickly between McLaren and Munich and North America that mimicking the, uh, the junior team concept that they had done in uh, Europe in touring cars and yeah. elsewhere, they did it in Formula 2. Very successful. It was a fun, a fun concept in the history of the company. So everybody thought that was a good idea, and it didn't take us long to agree on Watson and Hobbs. Hobbs was a real favorite of the North American group anyway, and had done very well driving with McLaren with the 320 Turbo. <clears throat> Watson was just exploring sports cars, having uh, come out of McLaren Formula One just a year or two earlier. And once I got to know him, he was pretty candid about his Formula One career ending before he felt he had the proper um, shake um, with it. But, I mean, I think that's also pretty typical of the era. He had a terrific career and was a very interesting guy. But John and Davey uh, were brought uh, to the table by McLaren. Mm. And they said, you know, Davey is really making a name for himself in Europe in Formula Two, Formula Three. I think he had done some Super V in the U.S. Yep. And John had done some, underline some, sports car racing, uh, but really not much. And I think they were after more the name recognition in America than anything else. But by the time I knew it, you know, we were all standing around in Livonia fitting cars and this kind of thing. And Davey and John were remarkably the same size, so that worked out quite well. But right from the word go, this guy was so pleasant and so easy to be with and so constructive. He was very serious about it, but he had a terrific sense of humor. He didn't take himself too seriously. He was very easy to be with. And there really was no, you know, Andretti thing. I think he was absolutely thrilled. And then we went out and we got two 325 ISs that we gave as company cars to the boys. And they were thrilled like it was Christmas time. And they get all, you know, three brand new driver suits and all the rest of it. They couldn't be, the two of them, uh, Davey and uh, John, couldn't have been more excited we did a bunch of filming for dealer meetings and this kind of thing. So um, I flew over to England and went to March, and um, John Watson gave me a whole tour of the McLaren Formula One facility, which was super. And I spent a couple of days at David Hobbs's house, and we went to BMW GB and had kind of a uh, formal ceremony. They each got M6s over there, which wow. I thought was the disparity between <laughs> the, the older guys and the younger guys was about 45 grand on their company cars. But having said that, they were very elegant about it, very professional as you would expect. And we had some really good fun. 
And there was also a healthy rivalry between the two cars, mm. which um, got pointed a couple of times, but it was only uh, pointed when there was real frustration. We had a lot of mechanical issues with the car, and we, we spent the entire year of uh, 86, 86 yeah. so, sorting, sorting them out. We won, um, and amazingly, almost amazingly, we should have won four or five races. We led four or five races, and we would uh, fuel pickup would fail, or something in the engine would vibrate. We caught fire many times, um, and and John was involved in perhaps the scariest uh, episode we had, which was early on at uh, Road Atlanta, I think it was. And we were testing very early before the season started, and he got to the back side of the course, and all of a sudden, no noise, and we see a big smoke plume coming up. Oh, Lord. And the bodywork was very rough on the prototype car, and he couldn't get the door open. And we had no corner workers. We had a minimum crew. It was just us. And he had to kick his way out of the door, uh, broke the window with his feet, oh. and got out of the car. By the time we got there in a rental car with a bunch of fire extinguishers, the car was fully engulfed and gone. And John was just standing there looking at it, kind of <laughs> worried about what we would think he wrecked the car. Oh, Lord. So it was, it was a scary episode. Um, but... Nothing phased him. And uh, true to form, they ran very competitively at uh, Sears Point, at Road America, at um, a lot of different racetracks. And um, they gave us our only win of the season um, with he and Davey at uh, Watkins Glen. Pole. Pole as well. Pole to win in the 500K at Watkins. I mean, this was a famous win. For the era, yes, and as you was. mentioned, it, it stands as the only uh, yep. for, for this short-lived program. But this was a beautiful, shining day in the sun for the the young guns, John and Davy Jones. If you can, Eric, share some memories from that event. So I know, again, we're talking about one year that you had John full time, and yep. you know, we wish it could have gone on for years more, but. The fact that he was chosen despite relative anonymity by the BMW factory to represent it in what was this massive sports car series at the time and to bring home its one win leading from pole. I mean, wow, this this was just uh, a, a hallmark, hallmark achievement. Well, it's true. And the fact that they came right around um, Al Holbert and Derek Bell in the Lowenbrow 962 was a a real high point for me because in my former life before BMW, I had helped Miller put that program together with Al and I got quite close to those guys and we were just setting our budgets for the 87 year. Um, when this win took place, we had had such a frustrating uh, early part of the season where we had to pull out and re engineer and do more testing and, we had so much vibration in the engine um, in between, say, seven and 8,000 RPM. I used to joke the thing could leak water and it would catch on fire. <laughs> oh, 
so we would strengthen one piece of the chain and then the next piece down would break. And the guys would never gave up on it. They said the car's got incredible power. We really can win with this car. And they led countless races and we would have small uh, mechanical failures. But we thought Watkins Glen was going to save us. And we were just doing our budgets for the following year. And we had a new senior vice president who came in, um, who had other ideas. And despite everything we had done, they, they canceled the program. And at Road America, we drove right around Al Holbert again. And he got in and really bored down and tried to catch us, and he couldn't. And Al was a very soft-spoken guy. But I'm sitting in the paddock uh, right in the uh, pit lane there. And Al comes in and gets out of the car and he takes his helmet off and throws it across the back of the paddock. And this was very unlike him. Oh, yeah. And he was completely angry that we were running away from him. And he said, Eric, if you guys come back next year, the championship is yours. We got nothing for this car when you guys are running right. It's unbelievably. It just walks away from us. And that's when I knew we really had a package that could win the IMSA championship. And I was absolutely, um, you know, rubbing my hands together with anticipation when they cut the budget and it was over, almost over before it started. It was really quite quite a great disappointment, not only to me, but to the McLaren folks and everybody who had worked so hard on it. So we come back um, and we start staring at the E30 M3 that we had, um, limited production car, fantastic touring car in Europe, but did not have a logical home in American racing at the time. The closest thing we could do with it was to put it in IMSA Firehawk, which we did. We hired Ray Corman, who had been running Firehawk racing for a long time in uh, three series cars and other BMWs. And we gave him a minimal budget. And we were so disappointed about our kind of um, non-year with uh, John and Davey they just wanted to come along. They heard about this and basically offered to drive for their expenses. Wow. Now tell me today who would do that? No one would do that. And they drove the M3s with Ray and his gang, and we ended up winning a ton of races against much more competitive V8 Camaros and, uh, and Firebirds and cars of the ilk. And we had an absolute ball, you know, running on, you know, just adrenaline and a minimum budget. And uh, we had a great time with the guys. And, you know, for Firehawk Racing, Davy Jones and uh, John Andretti were pretty big time at this point. So we, we came in looking pretty, pretty good for what we spent on it. And, you know, I could have bought two engines on the GTP car for what I spent with Ray in a whole year. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> but wow. I will never forget that period of time. And we had a great time. And we basically, you know, rolled our sleeves up and decided, uh, what can we do with the money in the cars that we have? And we did the best for BMW that we could. And we won some pretty good races along the way. And of course, um, the boys went on to terrific success. Davey got swooped up by Walkinshaw and drove the Jags not only at Le Mans, but all the time in IMSA. And John got swooped up by uh, Busby and his crowd and ended up winning Daytona 
in the Miller-sponsored 962 and had uh, a very quick introduction into IndyCars. And, and Davey then followed John into IndyCars. And um, it was really fun to see. I remained very close to them even to this day. And um, my only regret is that I did not catch up with John in the last six months. And I knew he was ill. I guess I didn't really know how ill he was. And from everything I'm reading, he was the same guy right up until the last day. Let's close on this, Eric. And you are one of many folks, frankly, who made decisions that propelled John's career forward. And I know, you know, you were part of a, a collective group there within uh, BMW in this decision to bring John on. But if we look at where he had been career-wise prior to this opportunity, the door opening at BMW North America, again, he built a really solid reputation and won races, short track, you know, classic American style of racing, done a tiny bit of Super V, did a Camel Lights race or two here and yep. there, did a yep. Can-Am race. He, again, little smatterings of things, but nothing that equated to someone from a major racing series, major manufacturer team reaching down and saying, hey, kid, come on up. Let's bring you into the bright lights big time. With this decision, John's career really goes into sixth gear. Just share, if you could, share some thoughts looking back. Uh, I'm sure there's some pride in the decision that was made, knowing that all John achieved across so many things. But really, this is this is the big break that comes for him. What was it like seeing how his career flourished, but also maybe share with folks knowing John then for decades, uh, the man he became, and maybe how similar he was to the one you first met back in 1985? Yes, very much so. And I would have to point to Wiley McCoy and some of the guys at McLaren who had been running Tom Sneva and others in IndyCar um, prior to us getting back together in 85 um, to do sports cars. But this was really um, building to the height uh, of what the Camel GT became with GTP as it's absolutely, you know, the sharpest end of the stick. It was very competitive, and the 962 was really coming into its own, and there were a lot of cars coming out, all different manufacturers getting involved, Nissan and, and Toyota and Jaguar. It really was, in, in hindsight, it was a very exciting time. I wish we got more than one season. We got really a season and a half. But to give you a sense of it, we went to the final three hour at Daytona with the prototype car and the, the body work was literally put on with duct tape and, you know, all kinds of odd angles. Bubble cut gum in and, yeah, exactly. We were, we were in the wind tunnel with it and working this and that. And the point was to go out and test the package at the final race of the year and then get some new cars built at March, uh, according to our specification, which became the 86s that we actually ran. And, um, you know, Hobbs put it on the outside pole uh, next to Saul Vandermerver in Rick Hendrick's Corvette, which was based on a Lola and the most gorgeous car you've ever seen. 
And here we come out here with this kind of junkyard dog that just looks unbelievably crude. And and David said, look, in qualifying, I, I had a misfire around the entire track. And I still got the outside pole. I'm on the front row. <laughs> he said, this car is going to be absolutely incredible if we can just sort it out. And that you know, became kind of the hallmark. The guys all talked about the power that the car had and John and Davey were just wide eyed about the whole thing. But I'll tell you, I never sensed they were intimidated and John never, never, um, let anyone, um, make him feel like he couldn't hold his own. He did more than holding his own. And in many cases he would come back with feedback that was as good or better than the, the veterans and we, we began to listen very carefully to what both of them had to say and gave them equal weight in the debrief after each session. Beautiful time. So glad that you were able to have that time with John and just to see all that followed from this pretty amazing uh, collision of, all right, you got the last name, but we don't really know you to, oh, there's a reason to know <laughs> yeah. you now. Oh, there is a reason to know you now. I think he was he was very curious. I mean, the notion that he would try a top fuel dragster is is to me very very typical. That he would not shy away from anything if he got a decent opportunity, he would try it. He used to tell me about going to high school in Indianapolis. He would get on a private jet Friday afternoon, and they would fly him out to Terre Haute or someplace, and he would get in these bucking Broncos of USAC cars which would scare the living wee-wee out of any normal person, you know, driving with six, 700 horsepower on a car with a wheelbase of about 90 inches. I mean, it's just incredible. And this is how, you know, the kid didn't play football. He drove sprint cars all every weekend uh, through high school. And it was an incredible, I would call it, you know, kind of a, a Tony Stewart baptism by fire. Um, these guys were intimidated by no one. And when you've, when you've got that kind of competition with these kinds of um, high-tech machinery, it was really something to see them um, get in it and go for it. And I, I really, uh, it, was, it was a tremendous time. Thank you for listening to Remembering John Andretti on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by the Justice Brothers, torontomotorsports.com, Bell Racing Helmets USA, and Cooper Tires. If this is your first time listening, more than 900 episodes are available at marshallpruittpodcast.com. We also have a subscribe page where Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and plenty of other listening options are readily available.